I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hi, I'm Nikki Barker and I'm a horticultural advisor at the RHS. I am most excited, as I always am at this time of year, about starting off my tomatoes. My number one tip for growing tomatoes is just make sure that they get plenty of food and water because they're very, very greedy plants. My name's James Lawrence and I'm the principal horticulture advisor based at Wisley. This year, I'm most excited about growing peas. A tip for growing peas is to try early varieties such as early onward. This can reduce the risk of being infected by something like a pea moth as the flowering period of the pea is often earlier than the moth's active flying period. My name's Claire Rattanon and I'm an organic food grower and this time of year I love to start thinking about salad leaves and what I want to sow and grow over the spring and summer. I like to sow rocket and I like to sow red Russian kale which you can harvest when the leaves are really little. I like to multi-sow both these crops into modules and I'll sow maybe five or six seeds per module and grow them as a little cluster together because I find that they grow really well as a little group. This is Gardening with the RHS. I'm Guy Barter. This week, we're going to provide you with the tools necessary to have a successful year in food growing. We'll get advice on planting in small spaces with garden writer and passionate plantswoman Lucy Chamberlain. Hear about the veg that transports one woman to Zimbabwe and learn how to grow something more unusual with award-winning food writer and grower Mark Diacono. I think the most important thing when growing your own vegetables is not to plant too much. It's disheartening to have a glut that you can't get rid of and goes to waste. And after all, if you run short, you can always top up with supplies from the supermarket and gloat over how much better your own homegrown vegetables fresh from the garden taste. We'll start today by looking at how to grow edibles in tighter spots. In this month's edition of our members magazine, The Garden... Grow Your Own expert Lucy Chamberlain writes extensively about the tips and tricks you can use to get the most out of small spaces. Lucy actually started off with the RHS as a horticultural advisor, so she really knows her stuff. Let's hear what wisdom she imparted when she spoke to Chris Young, editor of the magazine, who began by asking her about what kind of vegetable gardener she is. You know, I am probably a experimental, hands-on, scientifically trained gardener. Does that make sense? <laughs> That's a whole load of stuff there, but it's practical and theory applied together. That's me. I like the marriage of the two. You sound like the perfect gardener. 
<laughs> I don't know about that. I try. I'm enthusiastic. <laughs> so the thing that struck me when I was reading the article was the range of ideas for growing, no matter what sort of space that you had. What are some mm. of the most inventive ways do you think people can grow crops? Well, I mean, there's lots of inventive ways. There's so many different sizes of container that you can use. I've been to lots of show gardens in my time, and there was once a show garden that used brassiers to grow their fruit and veg, and I thought, well, that was very inventive, and underpants as well. So you can, if you want to, really push the boundaries. But I think vertical growing is something that actually, for people who are small space growers, and the article I was writing was specifically targeted at people with a small space, which is lots of people these days. I think vertical growing... So growing climbing plants such as French beans or you can get climbing varieties of courgettes now and trailing squashes that you can climb up bamboo canes or stout bean poles. That allows you to take up a very small footprint of your garden, yet the cropping potential from that plant is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. So that's a very useful way to get a lot of produce out of a small space. So now is the perfect time to be thinking about what you're going to be growing in the year ahead. It's a great time of year. What should Mm. people be doing now, we're in March, to ensure that they grow the crops that they want? To me, I think this sometimes gets overlooked, but I do think people should strongly look at their growing space and see what it offers. So, for example, where are your sunny areas? Where's the shade? Where's the little microclimate where you can squeeze in some really early crops? Where is the wind tunnel? You do really have to assess your plot. And vegetables just as much as ornamental plants have evolved to have certain characteristics to make them either love the sun or love the shade and I think that is actually key to success over my years of growing and I've been growing now for a good 20 years professionally I have found that it's true you can bend the rules to a degree about where a plant might want to grow but really if you try to for example grow a tomato in the shade it's not going to produce the flavours and crops that they could do if it was grown in the sun so do map your plot and then obviously just draw up a list of what you like to eat i know the go-to is radishes because they're quick to germinate and they do i love them don't get me wrong i absolutely love them but if you don't like them just don't grow them don't grow, absolutely that's really good advice because one of the best bits of the article is where you explain about choosing selections that are compact and productive what sort of thing would you be thinking about there what, what advice can you give us oh do you know what one thing i trialed last year and i was gobsmacked how productive they are was the container grown tomatoes so the compact form of tomatoes like the tumbler types any tomato growing in a container or hanging basket they are little powerhouses absolutely you must grow them because they are dwarf they're naturally dwarf and select there's lots of varieties we've got lazetto lazano romello there's an ever-increasing range now of these compact varieties They are dwarf and that encourages them to come into cropping really quick. So they actually crop much more quickly than, say, cordon or or conventional bush varieties. And I was doing actually a tally. I counted how many tomatoes I got from one plant. I was getting two to three hundred per plant, which for me, I think for one person in their back garden, in a pot that's, say, 30 centimetres wide and deep, if you can get that from one plant, that's phenomenal. I mean, there's the standards like things such as courgettes, Climbing French beans, if you keep picking those and your runner beans, they will crop and crop and crop for you as long as they're kept well watered and fed. If you can grow just one plant this year, if you're new to growing your own and you really want to try just one thing, do try these little patio tomatoes. Are there any tricks or shortcuts in your long and esteemed career of, of what you can share with us? You know, how you know, you, you talk about the small types of tomato and getting a great crop of that. Is there anything about the feed, about the watering regimes? Is it kind of luck and skill and judgment all, all blended into one? 
It's a big melting pot of everything. I think it's important to start with the good variety. And I do find that F1 hybrids are naturally vigorous compared to open pollinated types. And so if you're trying to get something out of a small space and really squeeze its cropping potential, then maybe look for F1 hybrids. And yes, you know, the plant will only be able to produce what it can with what you put into it. So if you're not very hot on watering and feeding and you're neglecting that area, it doesn't matter what the plant says on the seed packet, what it can potentially do, you're going to struggle. So I'd love to say there's these miracle plants. And I do find that there's a few that are more forgiving, for example. Um, I did grow a Gretti last year and my podcasting partner saw who pulled my leg a lot for me mentioning this because I did bang on about it a lot last year. But a Gretti, I find, is my newfound love. It's an amazing crop that actually... It's meant to be difficult to germinate. I didn't find it so whatsoever. I was giving plants away left, right and centre last year. And it loves a really sunny, dry border. So if you have a space that gets very windswept or very dry in the summer, do look to crops like a Gretti. You just keep pinching it out. And the more you pinch it, the more it produces. And I found it... A, delicious, which is a, the major tick that you want from a crop, but also so prolific. And there are awkward areas in your garden, such as really sunny places that do dry out. It works really well there. So my advice would be to definitely give a Gretti a go. Oh, well, that makes sense. And that's why we had to edit all 17 mentions of it out of the article, because you... <laughs> I do love it. I'm sorry. Technically <laughs> no apologies. <by> <laughs> and what about watering, Lucy? Because this is such an important and vital part of growing crops. Oh, it is. Yeah. And there is always the debate about watering in the morning or watering in the evening. Obviously, watering in the heat of the day is not very good for conserving your moisture levels. But I definitely will sit in the morning camp because for me, watering in the morning, it's cooler in the summer, first thing in the morning. And then you can irrigate the crops. You can get that job done first thing in the morning and get it out of your hair, which is which is a nice feeling as well to start the day. But it means that then the plants do naturally dry their foliage out as the day goes on. And so pests such as slugs and snails can't get a hold. Thanks, Lucy. Now, our next guest is fairly new to gardening, but she's become a passionate allotmenteer. And she's here to tell us about one vegetable that has a rather special place in her life. Hi, I'm Ashley Norcori. I am an Instagram poster. I post all about my garden adventures with my two young children. I'm from Zimbabwe and one of our staple dishes there is something called sadza and muriro, which is African kale. And when I moved over here, I couldn't get hold of it. So for years and years and years, I was making sadza, which is a cornmeal porridge that's quite easy to buy with spring cabbages. And it wasn't quite the same thing. And I always said, if I could get hold of some, I would absolutely love to grow my own. And just through chatting to some friends, I found out someone actually had, they were growing it. And the thing that's different about the African kale is that you have to take it from a cutting. So that's why I hadn't been able to source it before. And she shared some of those cuttings with me. And that's where the gardening bug really hit. The closest thing I can describe it to is Taunton Dean perennial kale. And to take the cuttings, you just grab one of the small side shoots when it's completely mature. You remove the excess leaves, you trim it back to a node, and then you can just add it to a regular pot with cutting compost as you do with any other cuttings. And once it's rooted, you pot it on. When I first started growing it, it was on the balcony, which was quite sheltered. 
And then when I moved it to the allotment, I started it off in, in a polytunnel just to give it a little bit of pampering. But I've actually found in the summer, it's absolutely fine outside. It's quite hardy. Keep it well watered. It comes from a hot climate originally, so it needs water. And um, in terms of pests to watch out for, pigeons love it. So you might have to net it whilst it's still young. Once it's established, it pretty much takes care of itself. The variety that I grow is Kovo, spelled C-O-V-O. And the benefit is it gets better the longer you cook it. You know, normally with normal kale, when you cook it, if you overcook it, that's it, done, dusted, the flavor's gone. This one, you can cook it for a little bit more. I was just immensely proud to have grown it because this is not its climate. It's normally grown in much, much, much hotter climate. But surprisingly, it's hardy. And other allotment users have also been interested on what on earth it is I'm growing. And I've passed on those cuttings. And it's it's really nice to know that a bit of my culture is being passed on to other families. And a little bit of my history is passing on to other other people around me. I think for a lot of us, there's some childhood memory we're trying to recreate, something we're trying to reconnect to. In my case, I was trying to reconnect to my heritage, a childhood food that I hadn't eaten in years that I couldn't get hold of. And I think that's how the gardening bug hits for most of us. It might be a tomato you remember from your childhood that you had from your granddad's allotment or some seeds you sowed with your mum as a child, maybe sunflower seeds, some memory that's in there that you just want to recreate. And for me, it was African kale. It's because it's something that I grew with my mum and then I saw my grandma growing it. Every single woman I knew in Zimbabwe had one or two plants somewhere in their garden. It was just that staple vegetable in the garden. You knew that no matter how bad things got, you always had that little staple to fall back on. Everyone I knew grew it. Everyone I knew had a few maize crops in their garden as well. All gardens were always functional. And it's that that I wish to recreate. I think the last year taught us how removed we are from the food system itself. And it's never been my goal to be fully self-sufficient, but I've always wanted my children to understand where their food comes from so that they have some connection to what they're eating. It's always great to hear from new allotmenteers who've been bitten by the bug. But as you might have experienced, gardening is as much about our failures as well as our bumper harvests. Oh God, I'm so embarrassed to share this, especially if anyone is from Zimbabwe and they're listening. But this is a true story. Last year, I grew my sweet corn. I planted it out in rows instead of squares, rows. And someone from the allotment came over and said, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm planting out my sweet corn. And they were like, it's wind pollinated. Nothing will happen, sweetheart, if you plant it like that. You need to put it in little squares so that it all gets pollinated together. And what I realized was that I was copying how my mum did it, how my grandma did it, and how everyone I knew did it, because they'd planted all out in rows. But what I was excluding was the fact that that was done across a whole field, which turned into a massive square. So in my mind, I was just remembering my childhood memories of going, sowing the little seeds in little holes in rows, going up and down. I had forgot that was across a whole field, and I'd have to replicate that just on a smaller scale. So I had to dig up all my sweet corn and replant it again in squares, which it didn't like. And then to add insult to injury, it was hit by the last frost in May. So I did not get any sweet corn at all last year. 
absolute fail. Nothing. I'm really embarrassed to confess that because that is the one thing I'm supposed to be able to grow. It was the food of my childhood. And that's the one thing I absolutely failed in last year. But this is the fun thing about gardening. It's, it's all a learning curve, isn't it? Ashley Norquarry. And just like Ashley, I've definitely had my share of disappointments on the allotment. I remember one year, my first sowing of carrots failed to come up, and then my second sowing failed to come up. By this time, it was getting into May, and I was beginning to panic, so I bought more seed and sowed again, and again, and again. And finally, in July, I got a decent crop of carrots. Of course, it was late then, so the carrots were quite small. But sometimes, if the weather turns against you at sowing time, you just have to re-sow and re-sow till it all comes right. Mistakes are part of the process, but perhaps we could all do with the writing of Robert Thompson. He was a pomologist or fruit expert and author of The Gardener's Assistant, the go-to gardening manual of the Victorian era. Sadly, his story has largely been forgotten over time until now. Our resident history buff, Fiona Davison, is here to tell us all about this relatively unknown hero of horticulture. Robert Thompson was born in the early 1800s, and although he's not well known at all today, in his day, he was a very famous gardener. He was born in a little rural village called Ect in Aberdeenshire. He came down to London to Chiswick, and Robert was one of a number of trainees who came down to train at this garden. And unlike those other trainees, he never left Chiswick. He spent his entire working life there. And what made his name was he was put into the fruit department and that the Horticultural Society of London was creating the finest fruit collection in the world, over 4,000 different varieties. Because in the early 19th century, there was complete confusion about fruit tree names and the same fruit tree, could have multiple different names. And Robert Thompson was eventually put in charge of sorting this out. For example, he they put out a call out for apricot trees and over 70 different apricot varieties were sent to the garden. And through closely studying them, Robert Thompson worked out that actually there were only 17 different actual varieties. There were just multiple confusing renamings. And that, although it sounds quite small scale and detail, but the proper naming of plants is fundamental to gardening. And then the other reason why we should all know and revere Robert Thompson is he wrote The Gardener's Assistant in 1859, and that was the Victorian gardener's Bible, because in it he laid out every single task and operation that a Victorian gardener was expected to be able to do. And he did it in minute detail, beautifully illustrated, but the main thing was it was done from experience. We have many copies of this book because it was in print for 14 editions. And what made it so popular for so long was it was so authoritative. But also it was originally published in 12 affordable instalments of only two shillings and sixpence each. So normal gardeners, not just the wealthy, could afford to build up this amazing library. Even though The Gardener's Assistant is written from the standpoint of a head gardener 
with a team of undergardeners, labourers and garden boys, there are still things we can take from it because a lot of the core techniques that he talks about, a lot of them are still there. You know, the pruning techniques that he talks about in terms of creating an airflow through apple trees. He says that you should prune an apple tree so well and take out so many small branches that you can throw your hat up through the apple tree and it can come straight down without getting caught in the branches. And just those kind of things, they're really colourful and evocative and you get what he's on about because he's a straightforward, simple man. I think Robert Thompson's story disappeared for a few reasons. He was an immensely modest man. He wrote for a lot of the gardening magazines, but he would never sign. He just put two little dashes at the end of his articles. He didn't like to put himself forward. And that's one reason he, even in his own lifetime, he didn't get quite the credit he deserved. Other people wrote up some of his Apple findings, for example, and they took all the credit. And then the second reason is, I think, that that high Victorian, very formal, very involved, using lots of exotic bedding plants and hothouses, that all both went out of fashion, but also became kind of economically impossible in the 20th century. And that kind of gardening ended as people adopted a more naturalistic style of gardening. One of the really touching things about Robert Thompson and, you know, a lot of the gardeners of, of his generation is gardening, although it was a highly skilled profession, was really badly paid. And poor Robert, he met Magdalene, who he was going to marry when he was an apprentice up in the Earl of Aberdeen's garden, but they couldn't afford to get married until he'd kind of climbed up the ladder a little bit. She was up in Scotland and he was down in Chiswick and it took nine years for him to save enough money that he could then bring her down and they got married. And they got married and they had children. But what I particularly like about that story is Magdalene bought her two spinster sisters down with her. And so they were all living in this little two up, two down in Chiswick. And poor Robert, I think, got more than he bargained for. I think it's important we don't forget ordinary gardeners like Robert because what happens is we visit gardens and we are amazed at these big gardens and and what was achieved. But what tends to get remembered is the garden owner when, in fact, the garden owner probably never got their hands dirty. It was men like Robert Thompson and other head gardeners who had the skill and the craft and the dedication to both create and maintain these amazing gardens. Robert Thompson spent his entire life within the four walls, the walled garden of Chiswick, and ended up retiring and was given a little pension. And he died in, I think, 1869. And he was a much-loved figure within the garden and was remembered, even after he retired, of coming in every day to check on the trees. And he had a little clay pipe and he would sit in the corner by the apple store and smoke his clay pipe. Great to hear all about Robert and his work. Thanks, Fiona. And that was part of our Hidden Horticulturalist series we've been running on the podcast. So listen out for our next unsung gardener coming soon. Talking of gardening advice, we've had a question from listener Hester B, but I'd like to answer. She asked about what hedges are suitable for an allotment perimeter. Well, I've never been asked this before. And I suppose that my favourite hedge would be a very low one that doesn't cast light and shade your plot and other people's plots and won't annoy your neighbouring allotment holders. That would be something like rosemary or lavender 
or possibly even an edging of chives. I think you have to think very carefully about how much hedging you want. If security is an issue, and I know it is in some areas, you can always use chestnut paling fencing. It's inexpensive and gives excellent security. Now, having said all this, and um, if Hester wants to go ahead, there's a number of hedges I think that would be good. One is the cherry plum. There's a purple-leaved form of cherry plum called Pisardii, and that makes a very nice little hedge. It's in flower in early March. Even if you trim it quite hard, you should get a crop of rather bland, but very usable plum-like fruits later in the year. Now, it's about time we focused on flavour. Of course, this is one of the reasons I love growing my own food. And someone else who is obsessed with planting things that taste fantastic is award-winning food writer and grower, Mark Diacono. A year at Otter Farm, A Taste of the Unexpected and Sour are just some of his books. Part of the reason Mark created Otter Farm in Devon was to encourage people to grow unusual and forgotten food. We're talking about kiwi fruits, sweet Sicily, chocolate vines, Japanese wine berries, Vietnamese coriander. The list goes on. But today he's going to be spicing things up with Szechuan peppercorns. One of the things I'm really excited about growing this year as a lot of years, is peppercorns. Now, you can't grow the, the familiar stuff that we get um, in the supermarket, you know, the black peppercorns. They're from a plant that just won't tolerate life in, the, in our lovely climate. But you can grow Szechuan pepper from a uh, region of China. They're very lovely plants, very beautiful. The leaves are hugely aromatic. They'll be starting to pop out very shortly. They flower, tiny, tiny flowers that somehow draw lots of beneficial insects into the garden. I always know that the peppercorns are going to be thinking about getting there somewhere around Hampton Court, so the early part of July, because often I'll take some there if I'm doing something at Hampton Court. But they then go from green to red, and the flavour and the scent is just incredible. A friend, Martin Crawford, who some people may be familiar with, he runs the Agroforestry Research Trust down in Totnes. He was and is doing amazing things down there with an incredible forest garden. And I saw some of these plants just growing merrily in his forest garden in Totnes, and I thought, you know, that I've got to try some of those. So I went big on lots of different varieties. So, you know, all the subtleties of flavour and everything. So that's where it came from. And once you've grown them, the pleasure of rubbing the leaves throughout the year, but then having the peppercorns is just wonderful. Top tips for growing peppercorns. The biggest tip I'd say is get three. Get one of the Szechuan peppers. There are a lot of different varieties that are known or fall under the umbrella of Szechuan pepper. Get the Japanese and get the Nepalese as well because they're very distinct. It's like, you know, different kinds of potato. You know, they're very, very different to each other. They'll grow merrily in a pot. You can keep the size how you like it. So, Really, I, I would say just because they're unusual and you may not be familiar with how to grow them, don't worry because they will just tell you. If they get a bit big, then you can just prune them a little. They don't mind. You know, I've hit them in a tractor and mown over them and they come back again. You know, they're very, very resilient. Water it well, feed it occasionally, if it's especially if it's in a pot. They don't need water in a whole lot, but like all things in the first year, establish them well. And a rabbit guard is probably sensible if they're an issue, if rabbits are an issue where you are, because for some reason they like the bark, but get one is my top tip. After that, it's a piece of cake. And you're into harvesting, growing and harvesting free food that's otherwise expensive to buy, you know, so don't waste any time is my top tip. 
Handily, most peppercorn plants are sold in pots, so you can plant them in the garden or you can repot them up into your own pot at any time of year, whenever you want. There are two harvests with peppercorns. You can use the leaves, and in fact, the Sancho pepper, the Japanese pepper, is harvested more for the leaves than the peppercorns, I would say, commercially. And certainly in Japanese cooking, it's much more the thing where the subtleties of the leaf, very present though they are, are preferred to the kind of wallop of the pepper. Um, but the pepper itself is just grand. But you, you can take leaves when you like. You can take dead small leaves in spring when they just come out. They're very soft, very succulent, very good in salads. as just little bits of punctuation, you know, that dot all the way through. The peppercorns will come in kind of early-ish summer, and usually, and they will hang on to the tree any time from maybe October they start to fall or December. Now, you can pick them at any time along there, any time from July all the way through uh, until they leave the tree. But you'll know when you have to pick them because the casing starts to split. As soon as the casing starts to split, it will drop the black seed. At that point, the casing will soon follow because the plant's done its job, which is to release the seed and produce more plants. So you've got a long season of harvesting leaves from in a few weeks time when they start to come out all the way through the time that the leaves are on the plant which is usually until about November December the peppercorns will be there from July until maybe October maybe December and you can pick them at any stage of green all the way through to deep red One of the great things about growing your own peppercorns is they have this thing about them that black pepper doesn't, which is, it's called ma la in Sichuan province. And it's the balance between the peppery, tickly thing going on, but also there's a gentle numbing that goes on. So your lips and the end of your tongue get just a little bit tingly, um, or quite a bit tingly if you eat them fresh. And that is part of the pleasure of Sichuan cooking. So it allows you to take more heat if you like chilli stuff as well. So um, the combination of peppers with chilli is very big. I use pepper a lot in things that are very simple because often they've got this citrus thing going on with the pepperiness. So Things like salt and pepper squid with Szechuan pepper is just astonishing. Five spice, Szechuan pepper again is one of the key ingredients with that. It works really, really well with, you know, the stone fruit. So plums and Szechuan pepper is really good. There's that bit of citrus again that gets picked up, but also that pepperiness. And it's the same with the Sancho pepper again. You can use any of these as the kind of, in the way that we would familiar pepper, but you can really kind of dot into the foods of those particular countries. And I think maybe a surprising one is to infuse vodka or gin with it. Works really, really well. Heron Farm, you can find their website, do a gin that's made with homegrown peppercorns. Really good stuff. The wonderful Mark Diacono. I think I may just have to give some of those peppercorns a go myself. That's all for today. But if you've enjoyed the show, do listen to next week's episode as we'll be hearing from no-dig vegetable gardening guru, Charles Dowding, on why we should all be trying not to disturb soil as we grow. No-dig is very respecting of the life that's there already. The micro life, a lot of it that we don't see under our feet. And in the end, that's going to pay you back. But for any more information on what we've explored today, just head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. I'm 
walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 